<laughs> anyway, it's good to see everybody this morning. Um, as always, thank God that we He's given us another Lord's Day, or just another day in general, uh, to gather to <clears throat> glorify Christ and glorify His name. That's why we're here. Uh, hopefully that uh, I can proclaim this message in such a way that would be honoring to Christ this morning. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please. Let's get right into it. 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. I'll only be reading two verses this morning. I think it's really difficult to go beyond two verses, to be honest with you, just on uh, the nature of what's happened here. We really need to discuss some of these points. So, um, 1 Samuel chapter 9, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, which reads, There was a man, a Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, and the son of Becherath, the son of Aphaiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. And there was not a more handsome person than him among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Let us go ahead and pray. Father, we just thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. Um, God, I would ask today that we would hear your voice in the proclamation of your word, all of us, including myself, Lord. Uh, Instruct us, Lord. Enable us um, by your spirit to just give us ears to hear. Uh, Give me a mouth to be able to proclaim your word, Lord. Um, Just grant us the ability to be able to worship you today, Lord. Remove any... um, any, any kind of obstacles that would keep us from hearing what it is that you'd have to say. Lord, even if that obstacle's me, Lord, I just pray, Father, that your word would penetrate the hearts of your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. So anyway, I'd like to stop here um, at these two verses this morning and point out some glaring um, warnings from these two verses of our chapter. And then, obviously, I'd like to point you to the remedy, even with Ivan sitting down here poking buttons. I've listed this in three points this morning. The first point is the danger of getting our own way. Kind of piggybacking upon what uh, Pastor Sean preached last Sunday. And number two, the dangers of going our own way. And number three, trusting in only one way. Let's start with our first point this morning, uh, the danger of getting our own way. And obviously here is the premise because um, here we see that the dangers of getting our own way could literally be, at the end of the day, the judgment of God. And that's the danger of being so intoxicated and obsessed with getting our own way. We can see that this is what happened in this particular story But don't get sidetracked just there looking at another story as just being another story. Remember, we too, as the people of God, could fall into the same sin of just so obsessed with getting our own way that the Lord gives it to us as a form not always necessarily of judgment because we're of his people, we're we're, we're part of his preserved covenant, the elect, but it could come in a sense of chastisement in a way where, um, you know, I always say, you know, it's either humble yourself or God will humiliate you. 
Um, I've been on the humiliation side, and let me tell you this much, it is not fun. It's better just to repent, right? The dangers of getting our own way. If you remember from the previous um, chapter in, in verse 8, uh, verse 19, it says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but we'll have a king over us. And we also may, that we may also be like what? All the other nations. And that our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. No one just says this off the top of their head. This is what just one day that this happened, and now off the top of their head, they just think, oh, let's just, we want a king and be like everybody else. It wasn't a knee-jerk reaction. They are probably nursing their bitterness for quite some time and just waiting for the right moment. And I would imagine it was the plaguing issue of Samuel's sons as judges, which the text seems to make clear in 1 Samuel uh, 8 verse 3 when it says but his sons did not walk in his ways they turned aside after what dishonest gain they took bribes and perverted justice how do you would you like someone like that ruling over you and making judgments upon your life when they lived a life like that what blatant hypocrisy and in 8 chapter 8 verse 5 it says and they said to him to Samuel They said, look, you are old, making a judgment, and your sons do not walk in your ways, which is right. I mean, it's a a right judgment. But here's where they fail. Here's where they fall. It's almost looking like, yeah, they used the right opportunity, but as a reason for their own glory and their own way. And many times we can be guilty of that as well. We can take an opportunity that we confront because we know what's going on is wrong, But we fall into that because if we use that situation of someone else's failure just to be able to give us a platform to be able to um, invoke something of the heart and of the flesh, then it's wrong. Just because they made a right judgment, which they should have, stop Samuel, stop those nasty kids from doing what they were doing. That was the right thing to do. But the outcome of what they use that for, obviously, as we all know, What's the wrong thing? This is a case where the right thing is done for the wrong motive. Yes, the elders did the right thing confronting Samuel and stopping unlawful positions of his sons, but their hearts were yet filled with the lust for power. The manifestation of a king literally came from a heart of covetousness, and not just by one individual, remember, but corporately. Basically, as we have read, that Israel desire to be like the other nations. This is this one guy popping out of the woodwork saying, we need a king. Just remember, this was a corporate decision by the elders. They all were thinking this. So this could not have happened all of a sudden. It had to be something, there's a presupposition there, that they had to be thinking of this corporately of something that they wanted to install, a king like the other nations, just needing an opportunity for this to happen. And I can imagine the opportunity arose in their hearts when they saw that Samuel's sons were operating in an unbiblical way, which first probably set them in motion to consider another way. But as you can see, their choice and their motive was completely in opposition to what God would have for them. God alone judges over men. God alone rules over. God alone is our king. But they, as we will read, did not want that. They wanted to go their own way and they ended up with ultimately falling under the judgment of God. 
when they cried out eight five, now make us a king to judge us like the other nations. Um, it says it's displeased Samuel. But the Lord had reminded Samuel saying that they have not rejected you, but they have ultimately rejected me that I should reign over them. 821, it says, and Samuel heard all the words of the people and he repeated them in their hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. It's almost like the Lord was setting up another opportunity to bring, obviously, the kingdom of David into play through a series of unfortunate events. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city and God grants them their desires of their hearts, right? Notice Saul is not selected by the people, but rather given to them, whom they adopt and embrace and don't even know why. They don't even know if this king is able to even guide and govern them. They didn't choose another king. They didn't know. They just took it for granted that Samuel was going to somehow provide to them a king. They had no idea who was going to be put in place over them. This is a major right here. This is a major issue because it was just like, hey, we don't really care who's over us. Just give us a king like all the other nations. We don't care about the other stuff. But come to find out, they, they had better care because it ends up turning to their demise. The king proves to be a faithful representative of their, just hear me out, that he, he became a faithful representative, hear me now, of their own state of mind, the people's state of mind. A very type and embodiment of that character and those habits of mind, which, listen, they themselves are exhibiting. In other words, they say, I've heard the saying before, that the face of our leaders are a reflection of the state of the people. He was a, a, an embodiment, a personification of the heart of the people. He reflected them. He was a perfect embodiment of the very heart of the people. This is what they wanted, and boy, did they get what their heart desired. In verse 1, it says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. And it goes through his lineage. And if you notice on the lineage of Kish, it kind of breaks it up. It doesn't give you the full lineage. It breaks it apart to where really it seems that the Lord's major focus here is not the lineage, but the fact that Kish was a powerful man. And he, God wants to make that extremely clear that this was a whole, this whole option, this whole opportunity, this whole event was really based upon power. Being powerful, having power, having authority. And this was kind of where they were at because it says that Kish was a Benjamite, a mighty man, a mighty man of power. If that gives you any inclination of what's happening here, right off the bat, John Gill writes, he was not a man of riches nor of authority, neither a wealthy man. So we can't default say, oh, just because he's wealthy and rich. This wasn't the case. Nor a magistrate. For his family was destitute and contemptible, as we read in 1 Samuel 9, verse 21. But he was a man of great strength, an able-bodied, bodied man, and of great natural fortitude and courage of mind. These things are beautiful qualities. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with these qualities. But when they're absent 
and they're they're a substitute uh, for God. That's a huge problem, and this is exactly what we see. But we see that when we read about Kish, we've seen that this seems to be, as you've read through Scripture, the Benjamite way. The Benjamites were very warly, powerful people. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the tribe of Benjamin or what would be referred to as a Benjamite. But in 1 Chronicles 8.4, it gives us uh, a definition of, of some of the characteristics of what would be considered some of the mighty men. It says, And the sons of Ulam were mighty men of valor, arches, archers, and had many sons, and sons' sons, and a hundred and fifty, and all of these sons of Benjamin. First Chronicles 12.2 says uh, that they're not only were they mighty men or men of valor and archers, like it said in 8.40, but in 12.2 it says that they were armed with bows and could use both the right hand and the left hand in hurling stones and shooting arrows out of a bow. And then it says, even of Saul's brethren of Benjamin. So you have some idea that <clears throat> where he was coming from and what that signified, what that illustrated, what that symbolized, that this was, this was a, a lineage of fighting men, powerful men. And this is the image that the scripture gives us. The Hebrew Bible mentions left-handed people on three occasions. The story of Ehud's assassination of the Moabite king, the 700 Benjamites who could use the sling with deadly accuracy, in Judges 20.16, and the two dozen ambidextrous warriors who came to support David in Hebron. All of these stories of left-handed people in the Bible appear in military context and, curiously, all involved members of the tribe of Benjamin. So right now we have this, you know, picture of what exactly <clears throat> is coming for the people of Israel. And this is what they're thinking. Obviously, we know some of these cases, the Benjamites, happened later on in biblical history. But the point still very clear is powerful men. And this is what they were expecting. This is what they wanted. They wanted a big man to rule over them. And there's clues that indicate that they got exactly what they wanted. They got their own way. This whole idea of we can never get our own way is, is, is not supported in Scripture because there are things you even know as well. You had in Matthew 6, you had the um, you had the Pharisees getting their own way. They wanted to be seen when they prayed. They wanted to be seen when they gave. They wanted to be seen by everybody of how great they were. And Jesus said, you've got your reward. And I believe it's in Exodus, or it could have been, yeah, I believe it's in Exodus, where the children of Israel cried out for, the now no longer is the manna good enough. We want quail. You know, so God said, okay, you can have it. I'm going to give it to you such an extent where you start literally vomiting it out of your nose. You can have that. Malachi. Look what Malachi says about, he goes, I will curse your blessings. You go ahead and just plump up. You know, take all this. Have all the riches. Have all the glory. Have all the fame. But it's cursed. It's not blessed. Don't go to your bank account and show me how blessed you are. Don't show me your house and tell me how much you're blessed of the Lord. Don't give me that. It means nothing. As a matter of fact, it could actually be a curse and a judgment on your own life. And this is, they, 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 they got everything they wanted. Kish was a man of power who had a son who was a powerful man physically. The Bible says he was a choice and handsome son. A goodly man, or what 
may be referred to as a good-looking man, good and pleasing to the eyes, a young man, and one translation says superior, well-pleasing to the eyes, tall and handsome. Actually, the Bible says he was the most handsome person among all the children of Israel, and he was the tallest of all people. Now, this says something here, and this is important to recognize This, isn't, this is really uh, quite important because of the heart of the people. It talks about the behavior of the king who will ultimately reign over them. First of all, it gives the characteristics. Now, they cried out, and Samuel clearly told them, listen, if you do decide to go this route, which you're going to go this route, this is what you're going to get. And he talks about what a tyrant this man is. This is will. This will be the behavior of a king who will reign over you. And I love how they use the word "reign over you" because it's the exact words that they used when God says they won't have me to reign over them. You'll get this guy instead. And after Samuel finishes explaining the characteristics of this king, he says, "And you will cry out on that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves." And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Imagine that. Imagine getting to such a place so deep in sin and so much rebellion to where the Lord will not even hear your cries for help. I believe the book of Proverbs in chapter 1 talks about this. You have rebelled against my ways. You refuse to listen to me. And I will laugh and the calamity comes upon you because you're deaf in your ears to my judgments. It's a dangerous place to be suppressing the voice of the Lord to such an extent, I want my own way, I want my own way, where you get so greedy that you literally become blind to what God's trying to do. To such an extent, the Lord no longer even hears your prayers anymore. That's a very scary place to be. But before we get away in our hostilities against this corrupt future king and government, let me remind you that we too live in a day where we have a leader who behaves like a king. Believe it or not, we do. A corrupt, tyrannical government, a leader who thinks he's a king and makes his own laws and stop laws. And really, is, we, we really live in a very completely corrupt time with a very corrupt government, very similar to the days of Saul. And it's easier to look, look at this story and go, wow, man, he's really putting it to the people in whom he rules over. But we fail if we stop right there once again and we don't reflect upon our own time. You know, people are always like, well, don't talk about politics. We don't need a pundit behind the pulpit. But listen, I get tired of that too. I get tired of hearing people say, don't talk about politics. Because politics are human beings that are sitting in an office that God created in Romans 13, right, to impose his laws, his judgments. The, the office of Romans 13 is still God's, regardless of who, who's sitting in there and doing things their own way. I'm not saying there's ever going to be a perfect ruler. But the point that I am saying is that God created that office, and that office never changes. And for us not to talk about the wicked corruption that's going on in our day and the people that rule over us in this country, and we just want to skip over that because we don't want to offend anybody in the church. We're afraid they're going to walk out if you start talking about politics. is ridiculous. You think about the Great Awakening. You think about the men back then. 
during the times just prior to the Revolutionary War. They weren't afraid. You ever heard of the Black Robe Regiment who stepped in the pulpit and thundered out what was going on in their nation and the corruption of tyranny that was happening in the leadership? They weren't afraid. As a matter of fact, they weren't afraid. They put the cloaks on, grab a rifle, and go right out to battle after they got done preaching. Where is this manliness? Where is it gone? Why are we so afraid to talk about evil tyrants in our day without being ostracized and saying, oh, you're getting all political behind the pulpit? No, I'm not. I'm just calling it as I see it in a day that we live in for the people of God and how should we live under tyrannical rule when we're being taken advantage of by our leaders in this country. Over taxation, slavery, child murder, all these things are legalized. No, not, the child murder is no longer legalized in this, in this state, thank God. But there's enough for me to talk probably for a good long while. But I'm not going to because time doesn't permit it. But I would ask you just to stop for a moment. If you're one of those, I know there's not a lot of people in here today, but if you're one of those that think that you cannot bring up, up the sins of our leaders, that's ridiculous. It's nowhere in Scripture, and it's unbiblical. We should call them out. We should expose them, and we should warn the congregation of how to live amongst tyrants because the church has lived among tyrants since the inception of the church. Godly people. I mean, even the times of Elijah, think of all these days of the kings. And, you know, we don't have a king, right? We have someone that, that basically is, would be considered a president, but he's not a king. Okay, so he can't behave like a king and get away with that. But a lot of things we see today is because the church is silent. The church is afraid to talk about things because they're afraid to get in trouble. And, and we, should be, we should be the ones speaking up. It's always been the church that's confronted situations like this and vile, wicked government. It, it, I mean, look at John the Baptist. He called out the king. He wasn't afraid. Jesus called Herod a fox. He wasn't afraid. So we shouldn't be afraid to call these things out as we see them. And in, 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 in good reason, though. We shouldn't make, our obviously, the entire, entire sermon all about political candidates. But all I'm saying is that when we have leadership in this country that's doing the things that they're doing and the church will not say anything and they want to remain silent because they think they're being more biblical, it's ridiculous. I know there's only a few in here, but I didn't hear any amen, so I'm probably the only one in here that's thinking that way. Yeah, I heard it. Yeah, I heard it. That's why I kept going. It's really what's called absolutism, if you're familiar with that. It's a principle of complete and unrestricted government power, usually in the hands of one person, a dictator, a despot, one who's commonly inclined to arbitrary power, doing things his own way and getting away with it because he's never called out or exposed or confronted. He just does whatever he wants to do, and, and everyone just sits idly by, twiddling their thumbs, watching Fox News, and agreeing with all the anger that's on there. Oh, yeah, 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 you're right, but no one's doing anything about it. A lot of chatter, but no action. That's usually the way it goes. The word sounds big, but it's really just an extension of the word absolute. If you have absolute power, you control everything. The problem with this is that absolutism can survive only through dominance, threat of punishment, and violence. In other words, tyranny. And as the British historian Lord Acton noted in 1887, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, this is just something that we as a church need to really... I'm, you, may be, you may be more awake to it than I am. 
I need to be more awake to it. My wife was talking to me last night. We were going through some things in some of her homeschooling stuff, and it was really dealing with the issues of men from the past who stood up and was really just used by God in very powerful ways. And they weren't silent about things that were going on in the culture and whatever. They, they weren't silent because they knew all these things had to do with our lives. Scripture is meant to address every arena and facet of, the, of, 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 the, of human existence, especially to the church. And, and just to cut out something because we're afraid of everybody is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. If they leave, let them leave. But be honest, you know, and call these things out so we as the church can go outdoors and know what to do. I mean, if the pastors aren't saying anything because they're afraid, uh, then that really is going to come on the people. The people are going to be afraid. You know, so there has to be a, a, some, someone needs to stand up and say something because... For me, I just can't sit idly by and, and just, just ignore it, especially when the passages bring it up. And I'm like, oh, that's true. There's tyranny there, but I'm not going to talk about tyranny in our day because I'm afraid that the church will, people will walk out or maybe not get a tithe or whatever. I think it's just utterly ridiculous and it's cowardly. In Exodus 18.21, God gives us clarity on what kind of person that we should be looking to rule over the people. They choose Saul which is the man of the people, but this is the type of guy where God would say would be the right person. In 1821 of Exodus, it says, Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, ruler of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of ten. Jesus clearly warns the dangers of getting our own way. And there are many dangers there. Matthew 7, chapter 14 and 15 is a very clear verse on that. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. The broad way. The broad way looks like the fun way. It looks like it just there's just so many more opportunities there. There's so many more liberties it looks like. We can do all these things and go through the wide gate, not even knowing that that's the path to hell. And Jesus goes on to say, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. This this verse describes the difference between humility and pride. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We want a king, they say. Not God as king, but one just like the nations all around us. We don't care if he oppresses us. We don't care if he destroys our freedom. We just want our own way. And this is dangerous. And there's no safety with a king like this. Only the judgment of God. Which brings us to our second point. The dangers of going our own way. The dangers of going our own way, which leads to bad judgment. Bad judgment. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Not live for himself. He must take up his cross daily and follow me. This is the critical view of life in general. And this proceeds and usurps all other ways of our thinking as believers. That we are to die to ourselves, to deny ourselves. Uh, not, not, Christ didn't die for us so we could live to ourselves. We're not to be greedy. We're not to be covetous. We're to die so that Christ can be glorified in our little measly bodies for a short time we're here on earth. So we pass into we pass into eternity, we can stand before Christ with a clean and clear conscience. 
Saul was made king by the League of Twelve Israelite Tribes in a desperate effort to strengthen Hebrew resistance to the growing Philistine threat. Instead of trusting the Almighty, they trusted in the arm of the flesh, which is in direct opposition to what we learn in Scripture. Listen to what God says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, which is in direct opposition to what how Israel was acting. Because the Lord said to Samuel in chapter 16, verse 7, he says, do not look at the appearance or at his physical nature. That's exactly what Israel did when they chose a leader. Because he says this is dealing with, with David's choice as a king, but it still is relevant to our situation. He goes, because I have refused him, for the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. It's not a physical appearance issue. Saul himself failed the Benjamite test because in 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 17, verse 11, it says this. It says, after he and his army heard the taunts of a much larger man than of Saul, being Goliath, he saw it says, was greatly afraid. And some translations say that he stood behind his army, behind his army, trembling and shaking. There's your king. That stood head and shoulders over everybody else. There's your warrior. There's your hope. There's your security. There's your safety. There's the man of the hour shivering and shaking behind the army of Israel because now there's a man taller than he is. Then in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, verse 31 and 33, he says, he spoke to, he says, now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul. And Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go in fight with this Philistine. And here's what Saul says to David. You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Think about that for a second. He tells David, who's ready to go just take this guy out, which looks like probably, according to Saul, a peon, a little wimp. I mean, who knows, but it's pretty obvious that there was a big difference. Saul judges him by his appearance, and basically lets him know <clears throat> you don't stand a chance. Why? Because his faulty view of Goliath, like their faulty view of Saul, he says because this man is a man of war, a man of power. Well, Saul, wait a minute, Mr. Handsome, broad and tall. Shouldn't you be the one out there handling this tyrant? No, because it's the same picture that we had of you. And now here you are, Obviously, saying the same things, therefore, speaks to us loud, saying, you cannot trust in man. You cannot trust in a man. Israel chose a king from a depraved heart. Therefore, they were honored with a hypocrite just like themselves. A national leader always represents the heart of the people. And it's always an issue of the heart. God looks at the heart while the world looks at the appearance. Jeremiah 17, chapter 9, the classic um, verse that we hear is the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Now, obviously, we know that they talk, we hear about the scripture being talked about the heart. I'm not saying the heart's always deceitfully wicked, 
But the reality is here is that, you know, what God is saying is that I judge a man's character by his inward, by his love and devotion and affection towards me, not by how he, how good he looks and the appearance that he puts on in front of other people. And this should be a warning to us as well, that just before you judge a person by the way that he looks, like a lot of these ministries really are personal you know, personality-driven ministries, personality-driven churches, where it's all about this cute guy up there who's had five divorces and this and that, and everybody's just like loves him, and he's just a, you know, he just he's cute, he sounds great, you know, but he, he's just, he's buried in sin. And no one cares, oh, we don't care, I don't care. We just love looking at him and hearing him, and he's just so, you know, he's such a hero, and he's a celebrity, and he's just, you know, it's just utterly hopeless hopeless situation. But God does look at the heart. You know, someone that truly is humble and broken and isn't in it for themselves and wanting to play the fame game, wanting to look a certain way. And and I'm not saying a man can't be big and tall and strong and be completely humble and a broken man. There's a lot of them out there, but this was not the case. And God's trying to make a point through these verses that we as his church understand that we don't want to judge things just by their appearance. And we want to make sure that we're judging by character and integrity. You know, sometimes you get the most broken men that, you know, can barely, like even Spurgeon, after he would get done preaching, I mean, he was so overwhelmed with grief over his own sinfulness as a human being to preach God's perfect, beautiful word. He had to turn to his elders for help. I mean, this just shows you that, you know, it's like, some of the most unlikely candidates that you don't expect, you know, could be the very one that God has chosen. And I, I think that's great. I mean, it's, I'd, rather, I'd rather choose somebody that was just a beat-up old hillbilly that, you know, knew the Word of God, spent his time on his knees in prayer, loved God's people, loved Christ, and get behind the pulpit and preach God's Word to the best of his ability than it would any day to take someone out of a, out of a, out of a, a, a superb, high-quality university that comes out of there with 10 degrees and is a complete hypocrite. Mm-hmm. Any day of the week. Any day of the week. I'd rather take a leader off the battlefield any day of the week and take him out of the schoolroom. Mm-hmm. Just, my, just my opinion on that. Hypocrisy is seen in two ways. First, we see it in worldliness. And this is where, you know, um, we want to be like everybody else, want to be like the world. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. And then Mark 4, 16 says, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust, hear me out, the lust of other things entering into your heart, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Think about that for a minute. The cares of the world, this still is so relevant to you today and to me, that we get pulled off into the cares of the world. Know what it does to us? It chokes us to the point that we become unfruitful. It chokes the word. I mean, I understand the reality people take this in an evangelistic way to the world. I get all that. The word never makes it to the heart because the, the worldliness chokes it out. I get that view. But the principle is still the same. You will find most of the time that someone begins to veer off and stray, you'll usually find them 
acting just like the world, talking like the world, taking on the opinions of the world, the judgments of the world, the performance of the world. They fall into that whole category of life. If you don't think so, get on their Facebook page. I'll show you real quickly who they truly love and serve and who they follow. Just by their, they got a platform and they, there they are in all of their beauty. When in one thing, they're the godliest people in the world on Sunday, but when you see their Facebook page, it looks like to me that they've been choked to death and the word of God is unfruitful in their life. Just saying, I'm not pointing on anybody in this church. I'm just saying, you guys all know, you could probably testify to this reality where you've seen people claim to be one way, but then you find out behind the scenes they're completely another way, right? Then you got religious hypocrites. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, 3 and 4, Jesus says they pray, they fast, and they give to be seen by others. And Jesus said they do everything for what? The glory of men. Jesus said even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, well, look at me, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness and dead men's bones. Paul says in Romans 1.22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Paul said, in, Paul said in Romans chapter 2 verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. It's a good time to check, give your heart a checkup. The making of Saul as a king was really a case of idolatry. Saul was tall, big, and handsome, and it was the pagan way. History is loaded with this view of what a king should look at. And this is why I say it's a pagan way, because history does show us that this is the pagan way. The historian Herodotus reports of the Ethiopians that they judged the largest of the people, and him who had strength according to his size, most worthy to be king. And the same writer observes that among many thousands of men of the army of Xerxes, there is not one who for comeliness and largeness was so worthy of the empire as Xerxes himself. So Ulysses, because of his height, was the more acceptable to the people of Corfu. So Alexander's captains, it is said, might be thought to be kings for their, their beautiful form, their height of body, and greatness of strength and wisdom. Julius Caesar is said to be of high stature. And so Domitian... Virgil represents Turnus as in body more excellent than others and by the entire, listen, head above them all and of Trajan and to his outward form and appearance as one of majestic beauty whose height of body being higher than all the others. The Gentiles had a notion that such men came nearer to the deities and looked more like them. Even so, Diana is described as taller than any of the nymphs and goddesses. Solomon, according to Josephus, chose such young men to ride horses and attend his person when he himself rode, who were conspicuous for their height and greatly above others. The pagan way. So God gave them the pagan way and let them reap the benefits thereof, which were not good. And we have to be careful that we're not choosing people based on pagan ideologies. And we are choosing people based upon scripture and living there. It's a far cry from Isaiah 53, which says that their Messiah, 
Obviously, <clears throat> Isaiah had been, hadn't been written yet, but their attitude didn't seem to change. Check it out in verse 2 of 53. It says, For he shall grow up, talking about Christ, before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form of comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And this is our worldview. And obviously we know Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, didn't always remain in that spot as being that way. Because when he comes back, trust me, he's coming back as our avenging king. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. Paul even backs this up. He says this, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many what? Mighty. Not many noble are even called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the things that are wise. And God has chosen what? The weak things of this world to put to shame the things which are Mighty. See, that's God's economy. That's where God's at in this. And then he says, and the vile things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And this is exactly what we see here. This glorying in God's presence. I mean, wasn't it enough? Uh, with Eli's sons, you know, and all the, all the criminal behavior that took place outside of the temple, you know, wasn't that enough? You know, then they dragged the Ark of the Covenant out on the battlefield, thinking that somehow bringing a big rabbit's foot out there is going to somehow help them eliminate their enemy, and instead, God allows them to be destroyed, and the whole dynasty of Eli destroyed. Wasn't that enough? Then to take the Ark of the Covenant and put it in a place where it's never intended to be, upon the mountainside, so this whole time Israel could see it and weep and groan and cry and remember the days when God blessed the people. And then finally, they, their hearts are broken. They come back to the Lord. And then you're going to pull this stunt. And now you're going to pull this stunt. And you don't even care that you have a tyrant that's going to rule in such a way that's going to deprive you of all your freedoms of being a human being. You're going to be treated like an animal, and yet you still want a king. And you don't want God to rule. You want to remain in your rebellion. You don't care about the judgment. The Bible says of lost people that there's no fear of God in their eyes. There's no fear of God here. This is just you're so desperate to get your own way, you don't even care. And you think somehow I can live like the world for my entire life, get to the end of my life and just ask God for forgiveness and I'm going to zip on into heaven. I would say that you're asking for forgiveness is false. And it's not something that we see in Scripture as true biblical repentance. We've got to be careful because this God chooses the weak, the vile things which he has chosen. It's his way. Because we can't glory. God won't tolerate any flesh glorying in his presence. He won't tolerate your, your flesh glorying in his presence. He won't tolerate mine. That's just the way we need to understand it. 1 Corinthians 15.31, Paul said, I affirm by the boasting in you which I have what? In Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. There you go. That's how we boast, we die. 
So Jesus Christ can be lifted up and glorified. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I know it is no longer I who even live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The dangers of getting our own way or being self-seeking leads to all kinds of issues. Which brings the last point. It's a quick point. Trusting in the only one way, and that is Christ, the only way. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a salvific verse. That's dealing with that there's no other way to God. But it doesn't stop there. Because a lot of times you say, well, listen, I get that. I'm coming to Christ. He's the only way for me to be saved. And that's true. Um, but we know that he did come into the world as a suffering servant. But return, but he will return as our conquering king. Not a failed king, but our rescuing, avenging savior. Because we've got to look at Christ, obviously, as just not a way to get to heaven. The right way to God. The right way to be saved. I mean, this is all true. But it doesn't stop there once you're converted. You have to understand that you're no longer serving under a failed, self-righteous, flesh-driven, pleasure-seeking person. You ultimately are serving the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He is your ultimate ruler. And what he says goes. And we have to have this understanding that the Lord Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. He's a ruling and he's a reigning king now. And we are subject to him. We are to obey him. We have to understand that he is truly our ruling king. It says in Revelation 19, 13 through 16, it says, he is clothed. This is when he comes back in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ is the creator of all things. Colossians 1.15, it says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in all things he may have the preeminence. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is your king. You know, this should really, not only say startle, but I would say bring an awe into our own lives to such an effect that we would, and I pray that we do, even myself. I pray that we recognize this more. Just because he's invisible doesn't mean he's not there. Just because he's invisible doesn't mean he doesn't see the history on your computer. Just because he's invisible doesn't mean he doesn't see inside of your home when things are going on that shouldn't be going on. He sees all things. He does. He's right there. The Quran Deo, right? He's right there. He sees everything we do. And that should cause us to behave in such a way. And you know what? He is so holy, he sees your thought life. He sees the motives and the intentions of the heart. He sees nothing, nothing, everything the Bible says is laid bare. 
He sees it all. So if you think you're getting away with something or you're hiding something, you're compartmentalizing something, God sees it. He does. He sees everything. But you know what? In his loving care and kindness, he does pity us. He does. And he gives us mercy. And he gives us time. And he's patient and long-suffering for us to repent and to make make it right. Because why? Because we love him. And I'll finish with this. The book of Revelation describes his return like this. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And the vessels of a potter shall be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. To rule with a scepter of iron is not to rule with a harsh and tyrannical sway, okay, but with power that is firm and invincible. It denotes a government of strength or one that can, Acts 1731, And this is the interesting thing because this is the reality of our whole existence. It says that because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Christ Jesus, whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead to be the one who will judge us. And Christ will not be opposed on that day. When he comes back, let me just say this much, nothing's going to stop him. Nothing will stop him. Nothing will, will, will be able to thwart his ways in which all of the subjects are effectually subdued. His enemies will be subdued. and They, will, they can run their little mouths all they want about the new green deal. <laughs> you ain't stopping this deal. This is Christ. And he, whatever he says goes, and he will put his enemies under his feet. He will shatter them into shivers. But for us, he will rescue us and take us home for all eternity. And that's exciting, especially if you're on Christ's side. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. Um, Lord, I pray, Father, it was um, profitable uh, for your glory. Uh, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would offer and grant me um, the ability to be quick to repent, um, quick to run to you, Lord. Lord, that Sunday morning wouldn't be turned into American Idol, Lord, but it would be a time of, of, of much reverence and a much the fear of God would cause uh, those who are up here to tremble by the preaching of your word, Lord. I pray, Father, we'd all take... Um, the low road. Lord, we don't have to be seen. We don't have to be heard. We don't always have to be right. Lord, we don't have to always be hypercritical of everybody else. It's a time for us just to take the low road. Lord, help us to be humble, all of us, but help us to grow together. Help us to encourage one another. Lord, most important, Lord, help us to serve you, Lord, with honesty and humility. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You'd all please.